Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. And today, we're talking networking for Bitcoiners. And I don't mean that schmoozy, smarmy LinkedIn thing. I mean internet and using your local area network. So my friend Katan, longtime friend of mine, joins me on the show today. He's also the co-founder of Ministry of Nodes along with me. And we talk about networking and IP, securing your home network, using your Bitcoin node and wallet, Tor and VPN, and a bunch of things. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin helps people accumulate Bitcoin as well as educating people about Bitcoin. So you can start off with a lump sum purchase and then set up your automatic recurring buy so that you are regularly accumulating. And I like to call this the Bitcoin savings plan. So it's really fast to set up and it's cheap to automate your stacking. With Swan, there is a focus on education and content because the more you know, the more you buy. And for any high net worth investors, who are listeners out there, or if you're with a business and you're looking to stack with that entity, Swan Private is the solution for you. Swan Private provides you a dedicated Bitcoin account expert who is available for one-on-one calls, and I've been helping out on some calls myself. So come along and sign up at swanprivate.com if you're interested in that. And if you just want to stack, go to swanbitcoin.com slash levera. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow stablecoins globally and anonymously using Bitcoin as collateral. There's no KYC. With Lend at HodlHodl, you no longer need to sell your Bitcoin. You can actually put your Bitcoin up as collateral and borrow stablecoins against it. And in this case, you still hold one out of three keys throughout the, ent- the whole deal. So while stablecoin holders can earn some interest, they can lend out their stablecoins by defining the terms and the APR for their deals. HodlHodl just completed a major security upgrade for the lending platform, bringing even more confidence and flexibility to the portfolio. So go to hodlhodl.com. Are you interested to get involved with Bitcoin mining? It's certainly become very popular recently and you can get involved now without having advanced technical knowledge or necessarily having to have very cheap home power rates. So you can select a machine, an ASIC machine, have that shipped to a hosting facility that has been vetted by the Compass Mining team. Then you join a mining pool and in the meantime, you're paying hosting fees and now you're receiving Bitcoin. So this is an easy way to get started. And for those of you who want to do home mining, Compass have launched home mining. So you can order miners to your home in the US and they've even made a Compass at Home mining guide, which is available on their website. Remember, not everyone has cheap residential power rates, and so they prefer to use a hosted facility just to get access to better rates there. So go to compassmining.io and you can sign up there. On to the show. Katan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mr. Ministry of Nodes and uh, Mr. Calix and also uh, Pop OS. That's uh... <laughs> no, yeah, I, pop- I, I, I obviously I, I had to get you on the show. And, uh, you know, it was, it was time, it was time to get you on. So, uh, for anyone who doesn't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, my name's Katan and I am the co-founder of Ministry of Nodes with you, Stefan, and we provide Bitcoin education material, particularly on YouTube. We also have guides and we do consulting sessions as well. So yeah, that's just a little bit about me and I'm into open source software, um, and obviously a hardcore diehard Bitcoiner. Yeah, of course, of course. So for anyone who doesn't know, Katan is one of my first friends in Bitcoin. Like, he's one of the people I've known for a long time. Um, and so, yeah, it was an interesting journey bringing Katan down the uh, the rabbit hole with me. Uh, I think it was the white paper that did it for him. But uh, yeah, today we were going to talk about networking for Bitcoiners because I think this is some stuff that maybe Bitcoin people, if you're new, you might not have thought about this. You might not know a lot about it. And this is this happens to be one of Gatan's areas that he loves. He loves to talk about. He loves to read and research about it. 
So this is the perfect thing for him to help educate our Bitcoin community about it. Um, so maybe you want to just start with some of the basics. Why should we even care about networking? Why do we even care about our home network? Don't I just like turn on and the Wi-Fi works? Yeah, look, I think we should start caring as Bitcoiners about our home networks uh, from a security and privacy perspective. The reason is, is before Bitcoin was invented, most uh, hackers and most crackers would be looking at things like governments, would be looking at places like that hold identity information, corporations, banks, financial institutions, exchanges, those sorts of things, right? They're the type of, you know, that's where you get the most bang for buck. Now, with the invention of Bitcoin, however, uh, that game slightly changes in that now home networks could potentially be something of worth. I'm not specifically talking about cold storage. I think cold storage and hardware wallets are, are fantastic devices and tools, and I think you and I both agree on that. But I'm talking more about hot wallets and in the context of specifically Lightning Network as well as CoinJoin. These are two predominant hot wallets that I am seeing that are now becoming more and more popular and becoming online. So if you've got devices um, that are able to talk to each other on a network, uh, we want to make sure what those devices are and, and make sure that we can exclude certain devices um, and those sorts of things. And this is where your home network will need to be at least somewhat secure to prevent something going going wrong with your Lightning Network node or your CoinJoined uh, wallet. I can totally foresee a scenario where someone, you know, uh, gets into your Wi-Fi, your poorly, you know, your poor passworded Wi-Fi, logs into your MyNode, logs in your to your Ride the Lightning, and then basically closes all the channels, sweeps all the funds, and does it at 12 o'clock and between the hours of 12 o'clock at night and 4 o'clock in the morning whilst you're asleep. I can totally see that happening. So this is why we need to start to uh, look into and improve and upgrade our networks because some of these routers have been around for a very, very long time. And so, yeah, th this is why I think we should start caring about our home networks. Right. And even that's the security part, which you've obviously outlined very nicely for listeners, but it's also the usability aspects of it, that when you're learning how to use Bitcoin, you have to think about, well, how do I use it? And how do I, for example, have a wallet on my phone and connect that back to my home node? Well, you might need to know a little bit of networking in order to achieve that. So that's also a usability and accessibility aspect because you might you might not be inside your home at the time and outside of Wi-Fi range. How do you connect back? What What's involved with that? So when we're talking basics of networking, what are some of the key high-level things that every Bitcoiner should know? Okay, so my thing, I think I've got a couple of tips for you. The first one is if you haven't logged into your router, I would strongly suggest that you do so. You'll probably find that these routers will have a, a very insecure default username and password. Um, and that will be assigned to you or given to you by your internet service provider. Now, on the back of them, they might have an address that you can go to. It'll be something like http colon slash slash 192.168.1.1. And then you enter in a username and password and it presents you with the router login. And there you, I would strongly suggest looking and to seeing what functions are available uh, if you haven't already. 
The next thing that I would also recommend is changing that default password. Um, I think that that is something that, you know, if someone, say, for example, you came in, uh, Stefan, to my place, and I said, hey, here's the Wi-Fi password, and then you went into 192.168.1.1, and it had the default username and password, well, you're now messing with my network, and I don't particularly want that. So what I would recommend is changing that, that password to something a little bit more secure. But not only changing the password to the access to, to access the router itself, but also to change your Wi-Fi password. That is something that I think that all Bitcoiners should be looking at because that is an attack surface. The thing that is that you should change it to, uh, and this is just a recommendation only, is at least you should be using WPA2. A lot of these old school routers will be using WPA2 just normal WPA, which is now obsolete. Um, but you want to be doing WPA2 as the password encryption methodology. And also, you want to be using a strong password. And the way that I like to do it is if you go onto the Electronic Frontier Foundation, there is a way that you can use some dice. Uh, if you roll some dice, it will give you some... It's got a word list, and it corresponds with your dice roll. And so... If you add, say, five words put together randomly, you're going to get a very, very good secure password that you can speak to in case you need it to give to somebody, but it's accessible to everybody as well. So, and it is secure. So that's one, another tip for you. And there's one more tip that I would also give is using guest Wi-Fis. Your router in there will have the ability to segregate networks. So you might have a trusted network and a guest network. That guest network can host things like your televisions, uh, your Chromecast, security cameras, Internet of Thing devices, you know, work laptops now that, you know, we're working from home more and more. If you don't want your work laptop on your trusted network, then you might want to put that onto your guest network as well. So these are some of the things that you can do. Also, keep your router up to date to the latest uh, firmware that is provided by uh, the router manufacturer. So those four tips, I think, are the baseline of home networks. I see, yeah. And so there's a bunch of things in there. So you were saying around fixing up your login because it's typically you know, admin password or something very basic like that. And so anyone who has that, what kinds of things could they do to you if they knew that? Oh boy. Um, well, they could start to shut you out of your own network. Um, that, that's one thing. All of your devices, your internet stops working. They can then see which addresses uh, have your, your node. They can see all the, the devices on your network. Uh, they can snoop traffic. So if you're using unencrypted ways of uh, logging into websites and, and using your username and passwords, uh, they can snoop through there. Yeah, that they can pretty much spy on, on you using, you know, advanced tools that are available on the market there. So it's probably worthwhile not having devices that you don't trust on your network. And, and then, yeah, basically keeping your network to the devices that you actually know. I am sure you will be surprised when you log into your router page and you look at the device list that's available to you, you, you will see a lot of devices there. I've seen homes with, you know, a lot of devices and they don't know what they are this can present a risk. Right. And in some cases, that could have been some guest who came over earlier and it was their iPhone or their phone or their tablet or whatever, and then they went away. In some cases, it might be that. But in other cases, it could be malicious. There could be somebody who was doing what's called Wi-Fi war driving, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So what you could do is, I guess, you want to screen through all of the devices. So when you reset your Wi-Fi password and you reset your entire router, at that point, that is when a good time to sort of go, okay, these are the devices that I'm expecting to be on the network and on the guest network, and these are the devices that I'm meant to be on the trusted network. So that's a really good time to do that. You'll lose internet connectivity for, you know, a couple of minutes, but I think it's a worthwhile exercise to just bring everything back online so you know the devices that are being connected onto your network. So don't worry, guys, you can uh, quickly catch back up to the chain tip. So you won't, you'll be all right. It's only a few minutes. <laughs> Your Bitcoin nodes out there. And um, so with the guest network and the segregation between that and your trusted network, how does that work? And like, how, how does the segregation work there? Yeah, so in your router page, common route, like I'm talking more advanced routers, but even just common routers will now have the ability to tick a function where you can enable guest Wi-Fi. And that will have its own Wi-Fi password. It will broadcast its own Wi-Fi name. So you might have a Wi-Fi name and then Wi-Fi name dash guest. And that guest would be where you would connect through. What happens is in the guest network, no devices are allowed to speak to each other. So you can't access your Bitcoin node from the guest Wi-Fi. You won't be able to access any other devices. The only thing it's got is internet connection, which is what is required to do, for example, your, your, your television, for instance, or your Chromecast. That is all that's required. There's no ability to sort of look at other devices on the network. And that's the strength of a guest Wi-Fi. I see. Yeah. And in terms of you mentioned updating the router to the latest version. So why is that important? Is it mostly bug fixes, patching of vulnerabilities? Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you keep your router up to date, you should be able to, obviously, these companies like Netgear and D-Link and uh, Linksys and all these guys who provide routers for internet service providers, they keep their routers firmware up to date for any of the latest vulnerabilities and bug fixes and all those sorts of things. So what you want to do is periodically have a look at your router manufacturer and keep that router up to date such that you obtain the benefits of those security updates. And so that normally is the process that you would do inside your 192.168.1.1 web interface as opposed to like having to do like a physical uh, yeah. upgrade process. That's right, yeah. So you do that all in your router login. That all of this, um, you know, all of the tips are within the router login page that is made available to you, yeah, on the page there. Gotcha. And so maybe if you could give us a quick overview, like how do routers work and how do they, like, for example, you might see this DHCP dynamic IP. You know, how does a router assign IPs out to the users on that network? Okay, so your internet service provider, it assigns you a public IP address. Now, you can get a static public-facing IP address, or you can get a dynamic public-facing IP address. A dynamic one, as the name suggests, keeps changing over and over again, and it constantly changes, whereas a static one stays the same. Some internet service providers will not provide you with a public-facing IP address. For example, if you're on a mobile wireless network, that won't have a public-facing IP address. Now, that modem will then connect through to your router. And your router is basically the first device in your home that will be connected to the internet. And it will be assigned the IP address or what's known as a WAN IP address or a wide area network IP address. Now, that is separate and distinct from your local 
IP address your or your LAN IP address. So you've got a local area network and a wide area network. Your wide area network is basically uh, going out to the rest of the world and fetching information. And your local IP addresses are just being assigned so that Basically, we can't have every single device having a, a wide area network IP address. What is happening here is that your local IP addresses are sharing that one WAN IP. And so everything is you know, traversed through this WAN IP address. That is distinct to you. Your internet service provider, because you've paid for it, they know your address, they know your credit card details, they know exactly who or what internet connection is looking up what. And in countries like Australia, internet service providers are required to keep metadata, which they definely lose, on internet uh, connections for up to two years. So they do this through what's known as a domain name server. So when you go out and you request information on the internet, the domain name server will say, okay, this is, you know, say for example, you wanted to go to google.com. This is Google.com's IP address, and it puts you in touch with that IP address, or it converts it. So that is how you know you're creating these logs. Internal to your network, though, your router is what's going to assign IP addresses or internal IP addresses. So your router login is 192.168.1.1, and then say, for example, you bring on your mobile phone onto the Wi-Fi. It will have 192.168.1.2, and then .3, .4, and the, the the service that is doing this is called a DHCP server that is run on your router. Gotcha. So that's the big connection there, and so. I think you were touching on this before as well, but what's the importance then of hiding your IP or what are the privacy considerations around what your, now in this case, your WAN IP is? Yeah, so as I was sort of alluding to, what you want to do is try to make sure that your your WAN IP address is not something that is, you, you want to hide it because this is the the gateway into your home network. It's the door that people knock um, that will basically allow them access into your home network. And so the job of the router, which is very, very important, is to act as almost like a firewall between your devices at home and the public information highway that people are trying to sort of look into. And so that is kind of, you know, the privacy considerations are basically... You want to have as minimal attack surface as possible. So that's why you never give away your public IP address. And it's also being logged. So logs logs of that IP address going to, say, for example, the Sydney Morning Herald website are being generated via the DNS server, but also from Sydney Morning Herald's end, um, their server would be logging which IP is accessing what websites as well. So you're leaking a, a lot of information when you browse the internet. And so you want to try and protect that as best as you can. I see. And so in practice, that would be difficult for most people to achieve, but it is worthwhile thinking about in that it essentially doxes whoever is paying the bill for your ISP, which, you know, if you're paying the bill for that ISP, well, then that ISP knows your credit card details or your direct debit bank, whatever, and that can be tied back to you. So if you are out doing something on the internet and they can be tied back to your identity, then that can be a concern. 
for people out there. And I guess tying back to the point you were saying earlier about securing your router, just in the same way that, for example, there were people who were basically illegally buying a KYC credential to get a Binance account or whatever, they're using someone else's KYC, right? So in the same way, like if somebody hacks your Wi-Fi and then uses it to do illegal things, you're going to get, it, it might look like you're the one doing the illegal thing. So that's also another thing to kind of think about. And then of course, depending on how private you want to be with your use of Bitcoin, there may be people in countries around the world where they do not want to disclose that they are even using Bitcoin. So that's probably an aspect to think about there. So then bringing it to networking for Bitcoiners, let's talk a little bit more about what it looks like if you want to use your Bitcoin node on your local home network. So maybe as an example, you've got my node or umbral or one of these different node packages or you're doing you've got your own box and it's whatever that ip number what does it look like if you want to hook up our own bitcoin wallets with that node internally so in reality you've got two options for yourself so you can do what's known as a, a vpn uh, so you can tunnel in or you can go over tor now each of them have their own sort of uh pros and cons which i'll go through uh but basically with a vpn there is some high level of configurability there but it is quick and it's accessible it's reliable okay it's very very good whereas tor is very very easy to configure but it can have uh reliability and it's a little bit slower um so those are the two trade-offs here now my preference is um i like to use vpns now, what I do is I have a VPN on my router uh, or what's known as a VPN server. And a lot of people, I guess, uh, confuse the two. There's VPN clients and VPN server. And VPN servers allow you to connect back to your home network whilst you're out and about and access the services that are on in your home. For example, your Bitcoin node. So you might have an Electrum server there or you might have uh, your Lightning Network node you can actually hook that up or your phone to uh, your Lightning Network node via a VPN server. And so this is something that you host. Uh, you can host it on your router or you can host it internally onto your network as well. But then you would need to open up a port on your router to allow that traffic in. And it's obviously, it's encrypted and it's got username and passwords and those sorts of things as well to, to prevent other people from accessing it uh, from, from the World Wide Web as well. So that's one way. Or the MyNode packages and various other packages will also broadcast an onion address for Tor. And so you can, in your mobile app, uh, you can then say, all right, well, can you connect to this onion address? And that will then give you your Lightning Network, um, your, your funds. And you can use like Zeus Wallet or something like, or Zap Wallet to do that. So those are the two ways of doing it. Separate and distinct from a VPN client, which is where you uh, are basically trying to hide your IP address. And that is connecting through to something like either Molvad VPN or Proton VPN or iVPN or something like that. That's different compared to the VPN server that we're talking about when, when it comes to accessing our Bitcoin node from an external uh, network. Gotcha. Yeah. So the typical examples, let's say you are running Ronin Dojo. And then that automatically does Tor and it's doing a Tor hidden service. And then while you're out and about, you pull out your Samurai wallet and previously you would have paired it, quote unquote, paired it with your own Ronin Dojo, which is your own Samurai wallet server. And then that's using the Tor network to kind of 
find itself back home or find the answers to how many transactions I've done and what's my balance and what are my addresses and all of that. And then, as you were saying, the other way is to do via VPN. So I think in practice, it seems like if, if people just want an easy way to do this, probably something like Sparrow Wallet on their laptop, connecting back to their own Electras. So that's E-L-E-C-T-R-S, Electrum Rust server, which is running on their home node, which might be on the various different node implementations, you know, Rust by Blitz, Renan Dojo, Noddle, MyNode, Umbral, etc. You would have an Onion address to connect to, which you would basically, usually in your inside your node, you'd have like a copy-paste panel and you would copy that address and you would then paste that into, let's say, Sparrow Wallet as an example, right? That's right. That's exactly right. And then Sparrow Wallet will then traverse through the Tor network and then connect to your Electrum server and then fetch you all of your balances right from your home and the Bitcoin node that is running at home. So that's exactly how you would do that when you're out and about on your laptop or even on your mobile phone as well. And so that might be an example. So let's say a listener is thinking about doing self-sovereign multi-sig and they want to roll their own. Well, they could be running their own node back home and have the multi-sig keys out in different locations and bring the laptop. As long as the laptop has internet connection, then you could basically use that mechanism to do own keys and your own node as well. So that's, that's an important aspect because people who are new, they might not understand that difference between holding your own keys versus running your own node. So there are different aspects of it, but sometimes they can be rolled together in one sense. And then the other part as well is just, let's just say you're in your home node, you're at home, you're on your own PC desktop, and you just want to connect to your node just literally three meters away from you. How does that work? What what's, Do you just use the local area network IP or what's that? That's right. So if you're within the home network and, you know, it's it's not an issue to, to go out and you're just on a desktop or something, then what you could do is just use your local area network. And that would be, so for example, in your router, your, your router page will have all the devices and their IP addresses. So your Raspberry Blitz might have 192.168.13, for instance. And what you would do is on your desktop, you'd open up Sparrow Wallet and you would connect to the Electrum server at 192.168.13 and the specific port for Electras is, I think it's five zero five 2 or 5001. So that's, yeah, that's how you would do it. You just use your local area network and that's the easiest way of doing it. Um, but I think now with people wanting to be out and about more, uh, they probably will, and wanting to access their nodes, they'll probably need, be needing to either use Tor or uh, a VPN server to be able to tunnel back in. Back to the show in a moment. As number goes up, it's time to think about your security. Have you thought about multi-signature with Unchained Capital? Unchained are making it easy for you to set up a multi-signature setup so you can have two hardware wallets in your control in separate locations and Unchained will hold the third key and they can countersign for you if you need but you are still able to control those coins totally on your own if you choose. So Unchained Capital are making it easy for you to do this and remove single points of failure. So that's the important part. So if you need a hand setting this up, there is a concierge onboarding program where you can have hardware wallets shipped to you and have a call to get set up even if you have never held your own private keys before. So this is a great choice for you if you're looking to upgrade your security, take your coins off the exchange or off the brokerage and take them into your control. So go to unchanged.com and check out the concierge packages there. There's a personal one and a business one and you get $50 off with the promo code Levera. Now don't forget to think about your Bitcoin backups. 
Don't just rely on that piece of paper that you get with your hardware wallet when you're writing down the 24 seed words. Get a metal product. The Cypher Grid is a new product from CypherSafe.io. This is the best value in the industry because you're getting everything you need for $59. You get two plates for all 24 seed words. The plates are facing each other, so you get privacy by default. You can lock it with a padlock. You get an automatic center punch provided, which is what you use to stamp in the words for your seed words and you also get a tamper evidence seal so make sure you or your loved ones could access your coins if something happens to you make sure you get a metal backup go and get yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code lavera for a discount and finally my favorite bitcoin hardware wallet the cold card you can get this at coinkite.com and they are really leaders in the bitcoin hardware and security space they have been around in the bitcoin game for 10 years now having earlier products and now focusing more on hardware. So with the cold card, it's PSBT native, partially signed Bitcoin transactions, and you can use a micro SD card to ferry that information back and forth between your cold card hardware device and the computer. And you can use it easily with wallets like Sparrow or Spectre Desktop or Electrum and Blue Wallet are just some examples. So you can go there and get that set up there and you'll find you actually have to learn a lot about Bitcoin in the process of learning to use your cold card. So that is actually a benefit and there's all sorts of guides so it's easy to do that. If you go to the website, you can find a ton there. So go to coinkite.com and use the code Lavera to get a discount on your cold card. Back to the show. Right, and so what we're talking about is at a conceptual level what's going on. Now, in practice, what might happen over time is more and more of the products and services out there, the, you know, ideally FOSS stuff, will build it in a way that's easy, that you don't have to worry about it, it's kind of going in the background. So one example would be, I know the Ronan Dojo guys are looking at this of having your node back at home, your Raspberry Pi Rock Pro node running at home, and it's running the Tor service, and actually that's accessible just on the Tor browser. So even if you're out, as an example, you might be on your laptop with Tor, and you just yep. type in this Tor address, and boom, now you can keep an eye on your mixes or what's going on in terms of your coin join. Yeah, that, that's another option as well um, when you're out and about to just have everything on the Tor browser. I think that that's probably a good idea as well where people can sort of um, look and manage their um, all of their, their Bitcoin-related activities on the fly over the Tor browser. I think that that's a fantastic tool. Yeah. Another thing that's making it easier, there's two pieces of open source software that are uh, making networking easier from a VPN perspective as well is uh, Zero Tier and Tailscale. Now, Zero Tier is using uh, OpenVPN as the protocol and you basically install this this piece of software on your com- on your computers or on your devices and when you connect to the VPN there it will allow you to access your various devices no matter where those devices are in the world and Tailscale is doing the same thing, but they're using the WireGuard, the newer WireGuard protocol. And so keep an eye on those projects as well, because that makes it easier for Bitcoiners to be able to... So say, for example, you wanted to host your node at your parents' place, and you know you, you, you want to connect back to that one. Well, you don't have to... You, know, you can have multiple devices at multiple locations and all sync that up using zero tier and tail scale as an option there. So that's... Uh, something that's um, you know coming down the pipeline, I think, um, to make these networking things easier for Bitcoiners. I see, yeah. And it is fair to say that some of these things can be a little bit slower if you're trying to do it all over Tor, or it might be a bit less reliable, or there might be times where you are out and you're trying to call back and you know check your balances on your Samurai wallet or something, and sometimes it just might be a little bit slow. 
but sometimes yeah. you just have to kind of retry it and just check and again part of that is like the software is getting better at managing that as well but it is just something to to think about and yeah in fairness to the different node packages a lot of them are now trying to do that also so i know uh system nine the start nine sorry start nine embassy has also like a tour back to your own embassy uh, I think Umbral has it, and I think MyNode has it. Um, yep. They probably all have it. Yep. Um, so it's just kind of like, but it's basically a web interface back to your node, as opposed to like literally the wallet interface back to your own node. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that that these are all improvements that we're starting to see because we're seeing that you know, like if you look at the Telegram support channels, uh, it, it is flooded with how do I do this over uh, over Tor or how do I do this over VPN, and it's getting very very confusing. And I'm I'm liking the fact that these node packages are making it easier for people to hook back to your own node over Tor or over VPN. And I think you know the the Umbrel guys um, are certainly looking into tail scale as well. I I, I know that it's constantly improving. It's getting better for, for Bitcoiners who want to be self-sovereign. And yeah, we're, we're using the tools to be able yeah. to do that. And just uh, on an Uncle Jim note, calling back to our good friend Matt O'Dell, I think that's another point here while we're here. It's a good point to mention that this is also a good tool if you are trying to Uncle Jim for somebody else. So let's say you've got friend, a new coiner friend, and you're like, hey man, download Sparrow Wallet. And just when you when it gives you that thing to go into the configuration in the server and here, paste in this string. And done. Now, you're their Uncle Jim. That's exactly right. Um, so you can see now that it, you can scale your Bitcoin node to help others. And that's what this is whole this whole movement is about, is just really making sure that we are protecting each other and making sure that, you know, we are uh, helping other newcomers into the space and not make the same mistakes that we we unfortunately made. And so when you have a trusted party, like a friend that we can, that you can rely on, whilst they're learning to be more self-sovereign, you can put them temporarily on your uh, node or your dojo or your Electrum server or your, you know, LND hub, and you can then sort of help them and teach them, give them the wow factor of Bitcoin and then move to and then teach them the self-sovereign way of how you do it and then they can hopefully help their friends and family and so forth and so this sort of this virus kind of spreads yeah also another interesting element calling back to the security part you were mentioning earlier uh, and this reminds me of the point that Craig Raw of Sparrow Wallet was making around if you are using Bitcoin Core directly in order for that your computer to be able to know how many coins you have, it has to keep your public keys in plain text, or it has to it has to exist on that node. And so that might also be a privacy and security concern if somebody gets access to your network, because at that point they could try to figure out, oh, let me see what's on Katan's box. Oh, here's his Bitcoin core. Oh, wait, here are the public keys for his coins. Boom, now I know how many coins you have. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you if you do have devices that are on your network um, and they are accessing or a, they have access to a Bitcoin node, the first thing that they're going to do is go into the wallets folder um, and, and see what's in there. And the, the wallets folder will have public key addresses, unfortunately. And those public key addresses could then be to be used to then see, because it's a public ledger, that you can see what the addresses uh, or how much the, the wallet contains. That could be a privacy issue for you later later on yeah. down the track. Right. And of course, these are all trade-offs, right? So you might still think it's worthwhile to do it that way well, because you need to. You need to do something. But one mitigation that the Sparrow Wallet team essentially is making is this idea that you should preferentially use an Electrum server because then the Electrum server doesn't necessarily, especially if the remote user is connecting through Tor, 
then you don't have an IP address to tie it back to. So it would just feed out, oh, here's your balances, Electrum client from my Electrum server, but I don't know who you are. That's exactly right. And, and that's one of the great things about an Electrum server. It allows people to utilize or, or fetch their balances very, very quickly, but use multiple XPubs to keep querying that uh, without creating logs that show which XPubs are being are being used or, or being being asked for or requested. So that's really, really handy. And yeah, that's that's why an Electrum server is probably the more preferential method of, of doing it rather than importing your, your wallet into, directly, a Bit yeah. into Bitcoin Core. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, and also just on this use of VPNs, this is another thing I've seen where, and this ties into VPN clients and servers a little bit, but also this concept of whether you just use a laptop or a desktop software client to go to, to connect to Molvad, for example, versus trying to set up your VPN at the router level such that all traffic through your whole network is going through the VPN. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what's the difference there? Yeah, so essentially what's happening here is that if you connect your your PC to, say, for example, Molvad VPN, that PC is being protected, and all the traffic that is coming in and out of that out of that PC is behind a shared IP address, not the IP address of your of your internet service provided IP address. That gives you some level of privacy. Now, and it reduces the logs that are being associated with your you know, your public IP address assigned to you by your internet service provider. Yeah. So uh, that is just for that device though. Now, sometimes what happens is that Molvad will have only allow you up to five devices. So you might have your laptop, you might have your desktop, you might have your mobile phone, and you might have a friend who wants to use it, or, you know, you might have another device or, and it quickly becomes, okay, I've only got five connections that are able to be concurrent at, at, at the one time. So, at the router level, though, if you connect it at, a, and, and some routers allow this functionality, if you connect it through to your, on, on your router, every single device on your network, um, can, will, will funnel all the traffic through the VPN and therefore protect your privacy, um, from your internet service provider and, and other websites, um, who are, who are logging this information. So, that is a better way of going about it. That's how I do it. If you, you know, you can use open source tools to, to be able to, to, to do this. Um, but yeah, you can use the, that functionality in your router to be able to do that. That's something that uh, listeners might want to consider as well. Yeah, right. And so in some cases, it may be that your computer level use of a VPN, so say Mulvad just on my laptop, it might still leak some of the traffic out through the normal clear net internet. And maybe that's also another angle there that if you do it at the router level, it's maybe a little bit more well covered. Yeah, that's right. So, so say, for example, you've got a Raspberry Pi there, um, you know, trying to put a VPN on a, a Raspberry Pi, it's possible. But if you do it at the router level, then you don't need to do it for any device that you connect onto your network. And so therefore, all of the traffic that you've generated throughout your entire internet history is then, you know, protected by a VPN and you're not subject to these laws, you know, where, you know, you've got your two years worth of metadata being collected uh, because you're not using the internet service provider's DNS, you're using Malvad's DNS. Okay, so now let's talk about this question of running a Homebox node versus a VPS 
So VPS stands for Virtual Private Server. And as an example, you might be running BTC Pay on Lunar Node, and they've got a very easy Lunar Node, what's called web deploy process. So that's one example of a VPS service that you might be using for your Bitcoin stuff. But the alternative is to try and run it literally bare metal in your own home. So can you explain some of the different considerations here? Yeah, so look, <clears throat> if you're using a VPS, obviously, uh, you are at the subject of your, your, your VPS provider, right? That is a trusted third party that you are relying upon. And uh, they they have the ability, if they so wish, they can shut that down at any uh, at a moment's notice. So that is a trade-off that you are making. And w- basically, it, it also costs money. So, you know, it's usually something nominal like $5 a month or $10 a month or whatever it is. Um, but they, they have the ability to shut you down. They can also take a look at your traffic potentially um, and see what you're doing. Uh, and that is what a VPS sort of, um, uh, you know, offers. But reliability and uptime, I don't think you're ever going to have a problem with a VPS. Like they, that, that is their bread and butter. Um, that is going to be something that you, you, you can rely upon, particularly if you're a digital nomad type of person and you don't have that ability to host something at your, at home. Um, if you're constantly out and about and you don't have a permanent address, well, then a VPS is probably the fit for you. You must rely on somebody else to, to be able to do that because you can't just keep taking your Raspberry Pi offline all the time to the, your next hotel location or to your next location. It just doesn't make sense. As compared to a home box where you can build everything up yourself and run your BTC pay server, expose it out to the, to the world, and you're able to host things yourself. However, that being said, there's reliability. So say, for example, the, inter- uh, sorry, the, um, the electricity goes or the internet goes at your place. Well, now you don't have a BTC pay server anymore. So those are the trade-offs there. Whilst it's free, it, it also comes with a bit of a trade-off uh, to that extent as well. It, but if you are, you know, in a permanent address, then that might mean something, you know, it's the more self-sovereign way um, and you can't be shut down. Those are the trade-offs there. And also, arguably, there is a trade-off there around exposing your home IP. So if if you want to run a Bitcoin store, receive payment for your products or services you're selling online, that's also something that you do have to think about. Because again, as we were saying earlier, you're doxing the IP, you're doxing basically the address and the name of the person who paid for that ISP, basically. That's exactly right. So um, if you are running something like that from your home, you are potentially doxing your IP. There, there are ways to hide that. Um, but then again, you know, it's trusted third parties once again, who, who you would need to then trust. There, there is no perfect solution. Unfortunately, the internet, when it first made, it just, it wasn't by default private. And so these are some of the, the trade-offs that happen when you are, you know, you're using a VPS versus, you know, doing it yourself in your own home. Uh, yes, you are doxing your own IP address, but there are mitigating factors if you are willing to trust somebody else with that information. It's really up to you. Gotcha. Yeah. And then while we're here, Bitcoiners tend to have more of a focus around self-sovereignty. So you might be interested to run other services on this kind of box. As an example, your own password manager, Bitwarden, or your Nextcloud, which is like your own version of kind of like your own home rolled open source Microsoft Office kind of thing. Uh, Matrix, your chat server, or Mastodon, your own, you know, decentralized distributed social media. Can you tell us a little bit about what what are the things to think about there? 
Yeah, so look, I love. I've been going down the rabbit hole of self-hosting for quite some time now, and I love it. Um, you can host, like, so you can. What you can do is, uh, you can host your own services, so you don't need to rely on trusted third parties. So, for example, if you don't want to use Bitwarden's server, you can create your own Bitwarden server because it is open source um, software. And so, instead of calling out to uh, Bitwarden.com, you call out to your own um, network and retrieve your passwords from your own home network same thing with mastodon uh if you it, it is a a twitter alternative but basically it's self-hosted and so uh if uh, one of the advantages are is that the, the censorship and the and the deplatforming and those sorts of things can't occur that's not to say that nobody can can block you um yeah you can be blocked still but your your, your words um they will still remain there up for everybody to see if they so wish to listen so that's uh, another uh, example. And then you've also got uh, Nextcloud, which, as you mentioned, um, is a great open source Dropbox-style uh, alternative that you can host and, and manage your, your data through that. These are all things that you can do. I would strongly recommend that you keep your node separate from if you are doing hardware, you know, these sorts of uh, other like peripheral other things. Yeah. yeah, other self-hosting. But I know that, you know, the Umbrel guys and the um, Start9 guys, they are doing it all in the Raspberry Pi. Um, I'm interested to see how that works out long term um, and seeing what happens with that. But at this point, my, my conscience is telling me, hey, Bitcoin-related activities, one piece of device, and self-hosting activities, another piece of device, depending upon your circumstances. But that's just me, personally. Let's see what happens in that right. space. And I suppose the Start9 Labs person could come back and say, well, fine, Katan, what I might do is have two. I'd have one for my Bitcoin stuff and one for the non-Bitcoin stuff. And maybe That's exactly right, yeah. So that, that just sort of segregates out the resources, particularly in high-resource environments. Sometimes when, you know, I, I know now that uh, Electrum has, uh, or the Electrum server has upgraded um, and now you need to re-index all of your, uh, all of the transactions, the 420 uh, gigabytes. That's going to take some time on a Raspberry Pi. And then to have that, slowing everything down like for example a next cloud as well during that time what's going to happen there the, the, that's the key concerns that i've got there um but you know let's see what what happens you might want to you know segregate and have two cloud two raspberry Pis, one running bitcoin only and one running all of your other peripheral services as well that's a great solution and while we're talking about all the upsides of self-sovereignty i think we should probably also to be fair talk about some of the downsides <laughs> right because there can yeah. be issues with these things and it's probably good to give a fair presentation of what that is so yes the upside is look you're being more self-sovereign you're not as reliant on trusted third parties or other service providers what are some of the downsides that you have seen in trying to go down this pathway okay so the electricity shuts down at home that is a downside right if if you know the electricity goes out or your internet service provider goes out for some strange reason it is just painful. You won't be able to tunnel back. Uh, you, you could be out and about somewhere else and at home, no one's home, no one can look into it and you're just left high and dry. It's not helpful. It's also, there's time involved. There's your time in being able to uh, set this up, make it robust, understand what's going on. There is a bit of knowledge. There is a bit of a journey. Call it a rabbit hole uh, that you might need to go down to, to be able to familiarize yourself with some of the concepts and the terms that are going on. So those are some of the you know downsides, obviously. And you know it can be finicky. It can take a little bit of time. It's gonna. But I think once you're sort of familiar with what's going on, it can become easier over time. But that's that's the trade-off. It's your time. 
Yeah. So I think it's probably fair to say it will require a bit more technical competence and it will require a bit more time in troubleshooting things. When things go wrong, you might just need to be able to learn how to stop and restart a service or to restart the box. And you might need to be comfortable with using SSH while you're out to SSH back into your home box to, to do these things. And that's, you know, that will take you time and there might be connectivity issues there and all sorts of things. But these are th- some of the things just to give a fair presentation of it. I agree totally. Um, self-sovereignty is sometimes not for everybody. And this is where, you know, trusted providers in the space can offer solutions for those people who are just starting off their journey or just want to just dump, jump straight into, you know, a, a level of service that, you know, that, that they can recommend or that they, they can sort of um, stick to for now and then learn the, the ropes and then maybe transition away from them. It's up to you what you want to do and what you want to decide to do. But yeah, th- there is a level, level of competency that is required. That is a fair, fair point, Stefan. Yeah. And also, I mean, this is maybe not as networking related, but just generally want to get your thoughts on the use of Raspberry Pi devices versus, say, a proper box or maybe somewhere in between, like people who use like Rock Pro 64 and things like that. I know you've got thoughts on this. Yeah, look, I I hope I don't get cancelled for this, but I am not a fan of the Raspberry Pis today. Look, I think that they are great learning materials. They are good for Hackerman type uh, scenarios where you're just sort of entry level almost as well. If you want to play around with things, if you want to test environments, if you want to do those sorts of things. But a production environment, I believe, requires a little bit more grunt, a little bit of more overhead. And like, for example, I know guys who have started with their Lightning Network nodes and, you know, the, those channels have now increased. Uh, the RAM usage has increased. Um, the, you know, they're going to upgrade to the latest version of Electrum. The resources and the systems are going to increase. And I, I suspect that these changes will keep coming through as time progresses. And so if we are limiting, um, you know, to a small board computer, uh, then, you know, that can present some channel challenges. Whereas if you get old, older hardware um, that has a little bit more grunt and maybe a little bit more expensive, I'm not talking thousands, I'm still talking hundreds of dollars, uh, then maybe, you know, that could present a better uh, deal for for those who require that reliability or that you know that grunt um, whereas a raspberry pi is a great mechanism for learning to understand what's going on and then moving over to a node box for a more production environment i think is probably a better uh you know better investment of the of the resources that you're going to deploy um, specifically if you're running like routing um, channels and you know those sorts of type of activities you want something that's not going to be flimsy uh, that when you hit the upgrade button that it is actually going to upgrade and you know there's no technical sort of glitches that are going to happen these things just come with time I guess and I think uh, you know I- I'm sure the other you know the the, the, the implementations um, are going to to improve over time but these are some of the things that I think Bitcoiners are facing and I think they need a strong, reliable um, method. And I've got a whole YouTube uh, series called the Ubuntu Notebox Guide, which um, basically it's on YouTube at youtube.com slash ministry of notes. It's an entire playlist to take you through some of the commands and what's happening in the background uh, if, if, if listeners would like to learn. Um, 
run it at two speed to save some time and you know you might be able to get some up to speed onto how uh, what services are actually being run on your MyNode or your dojo or your, or your ronin dojo or whatever and uh, you can then see how it works in the back end um, through my video tutorials so open noms please um <laughs> yeah don't hate on me too much for my opinions <laughs> and uh it's probably <laughs> fair to say that it depends how many services you want to run on that Raspberry Pi. Like, I think one thing that maybe a new coiner or a relatively new Bitcoin player who's coming in is like, yeah, I want to I want to run my node. And, you know, I've seen everyone tweet out their pictures of their node. I want to I want to do it too. But what might happen is you might be in a situation where at the start it's all working fine. But then as you start adding more, more and more services and as time runs on, you find the reliability starts to become more of a concern is that something you've seen or what's your, do you have any comment to add there? Yeah, look, I think a lot of people have um, come up to me and said, hey, look, I'm having problems with my with my Raspberry Pi device. I, I don't know if the fan is out or if I don't know if, um, you know, I'm not calling this properly or the USB cable is a little bit flimsy and it's not reading the, the SSD correctly. You know, there, there are an array, of, there could be power supply issues as well. Like, you know, the, it's just not, having enough power being drawn out of that Raspberry Pi to to upgrade things. And so these reliability concerns over time are presenting themselves. Now, the the, the really tragic thing is if, you know, you've got lots of lightning channels, um, you, you've, you've deployed some capital on there, and for some strange reason, your, your Raspberry Pi has some somehow sort of, um, you know, blown up, and you now need to sort of recover the channel backups and all that sort of stuff. It's it's just painful, um, and I think Umbrel is providing some good solutions for that, um, and they recognise that that is an issue, and so they're providing solutions for backups and those sorts of things as well. So, you know, this space is constantly evolving and it is improving. It's just what what do we do between now and the future state? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, these are things that are just teething issues that you know are, are happening. Yeah, and. Also, it's fair to say right now, it seems there's a shortage of Raspberry Pis just globally. So it <laughs> might be time to maybe for some people who want to use Rock Pro 64 instead or, yeah, just sort of upgrade to having a cheap node box. So maybe if you could just outline what are the costs if you were to try to step it up to a node box? Like what are some of the pieces, parts, at least in Australian dollar terms or US dollar terms? Yeah, look, so the, the way that I like it, um, that, that I look at is that we have a website called ozbargain.com.au. Um, it's got a lot of deals, uh, particularly around computers as well. But you can get these Office X lease uh, refurbished computers that are really, really rock solid. And you can get them, pick them up with eight gigabytes of RAM, you know, a, a small SSD, which you can then replace with uh, another SSD, like a one terabyte SSD, which is what you're going to need for a blockchain. But basically, we're looking at about $190 to $200 AUD for a, a box that has, you know, an i5 processor um, and, you know, eight gigabytes of RAM. And uh, you'll chuck in a, say, call it 150 dollars for a, a, a one terabyte SSD and you're looking at somewhere in the vicinity of $350 to $400 for a pretty decent node box um, that you can run uh, that sits a, that sits away now I've been running mine flawlessly with all the Bitcoin uh, software available um, you know I've run join market I've run whirlpool I've run dojo I've run BTC pay server LN bits LN you know all the goodies that we're you know that the developers are making 
and it's been running rock solid for about three years straight. I've never had a problem with it. And that type of reliability and that type of, I guess, peace of mind is something that I value, particularly when it comes to the Lightning Network as well. Um, so those are, you know, that's some of the costs that we're looking at there. Yeah. And it's also important to note, you're not necessarily going to keep the all the keys for your Bitcoin on there right now. Lightning and CoinJoin, obviously, the keys must remain hot. Those are the common examples. But for your cold storage, you might have that on your cold card or your multi-sig and using Sparrow or Electrum Server or Spectre Desktop and calling back to the node. So the node does not have the keys for your HODL stack, your big stash. It's just got a smaller amount, which is your coin join or lightning stuff. Just an important point. That's exactly, that, that is an important point. Yes, there's a distinction there between cold storage as well as wallets that are hot. Cold storage, you know, you know it's a good, you know, distinction there to say that, you know, your cold storage will be safe and that it's only just calling upon the node to retrieve the updated balance information and you know, you only really need to bring out your cold card when you want to sign for a transaction. And that is all air-gapped as well. So, you know, there is no internet connectivity happening there. So it's pretty it's pretty rock solid. Right, yeah. So I think those are probably the key points. I think that was a really good overview for Bitcoin people who are trying to learn a little bit more. In some ways, you do have to become a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades and learn a little bit about economics and learn a little bit about computers and learn a little bit about you know markets and finance and obviously learn a little bit about networking. And that's just part of, uh, I guess, becoming a well-rounded Bitcoiner and knowing what it takes. So as we finish off, Katan, any uh, final tips for the listeners? And of course, where can people find you online? Yeah, so look, I think the the tip is to get started. I think don't be too complacent about this. Don't just say, oh, you know what, I'll leave it. I'll, I'll leave my network just with a default username and password. Proactively try to you know, even if it's a small steps to get you to get you started, I think that those are worthwhile endeavors to take. Where you can find me, I'm at at underscore K3TAN on, on Twitter. Um, you can always find me at Ministry of Nodes as well. And our YouTube channel is at youtube.com slash Ministry of Nodes and our website, ministryofnodes.com.au. If you need any further consulting, I've got a calendar there for for people to just sort of book in um, and they can, you know, give me a buzz and and we can discuss any of the important Bitcoiner topics that you want to uh, have a look through. Fantastic. Thanks, Itan. No worries. Take care, Stefan. So I hope you found that useful and you learned something about using Bitcoin and your networking aspects and securing your home network. Go to stefanlevera.com slash 315 for the show notes and the transcript. That's it from me and I'll see you in the Citadels.